Alrighty, good evening, everybody. How are we doing? Good. My name is Mikey. Nice to meet you all. We're going to dig in tonight. Uh, we're going to continue worshiping. We just worship with music and song. We are going to continue worshiping by learning more through God's Word. So if you got your Bible, bust it out. We're going to get right into it. I'm actually going to start in 1 Peter tonight. We're going through the Old Testament, but I'm going to start with a passage from 1 Peter. So Peter is the author of this. He is one of Jesus' disciples, and he is writing a letter to some churches dispersed abroad, and he says this, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the chosen, living as exiles, underline that, dispersed abroad in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to be obedient and to be sprinkled with the blood of Jesus Christ. So, most of us in the room are American citizens. If you're not, I'm sorry, don't, don't be offended. I'm just using the illustration here. Most of us in the room are American citizens. And how did we become citizens of the United States of America? Chances are most of us were born here, okay? Any place that you're born you automatically gain citizenship to that place. You can also go through a process of living there, taking tests, all this stuff. But for the most part, people are citizens of the country that they were born in. Okay, but if you are a citizen of a country living in a different country, that means you are in exile. You're living away from your home. So for some of us in the room who are American citizens, that is the most appropriate way to describe you. Who are you? I'm an American, okay? But if you're a Christian in the room, that actually goes down a level and you have a different citizenship that's more real and more true about yourself. If you're a Christian, you've put your faith in Jesus Christ, that means, he said, you must be born again, okay? So Christians have experienced a new birth, which means they have a new birthplace, hence a new citizenship. So if you're a Christian, you are an exile here on earth in America, you have a more real citizenship in heaven. If you guys remember when we started the uh, first semester, we did our series called The Colony of Heaven. We were trying to be a colony of heaven, of citizens of heaven, living in a country of death. We're saying the same thing. Uh, Peter's saying the same thing in that passage. He says, to the chosen, the children of God, who are living as exiles. That's us, Okay. I want to start the evening by saying if you're a Christian, you are in exile because you're a child of God and your home is now in heaven. So then I want to look back. What does the Old Testament have to say about this idea of living as an exile? So if you're taking notes, the title this evening, What to Expect as an Exile. What to expect from life as an exile. For our answer, we're going to look at a story of three uh, great men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. If you're wondering what they look like, I actually have a picture of them. You throw that up. That's them. Some of you may know them as Rack, Shack, and Benny. One fiery furnace, three brave vegetables. That's where we're going tonight. So, if you got your Bible, open up to the book of Daniel. If you have my Bible here, it's page 1322. Probably doesn't matter to you. Uh, the book of Daniel is one of the prophets, okay? Uh, it was saying something about the future, but the first half of the book is filled with amazing stories of God's providence, his care for his people, 
Um, and so I would encourage you to actually go through the book of Daniel on your own time. If you're in a Bible plan, maybe take a break this next week and read through the book of Daniel nice and slow. It's a great book. And uh, we're going to be in chapter 3, so I want to give you a little background, catch up to speed with where we're at tonight. King Nebuchadnezzar is one of our main characters. And in chapter 1, it says that he laid siege to uh, Judah, who was God's chosen people. Okay, So he takes God's chosen people, kind of uproots them, uh, takes them captive, rips them from their home, and uh, forces them to live in a foreign land serving a foreign king. Okay, We don't really see anything like this nowadays was pretty crazy. There was really no end in sight for them. They were just now part of, this is what we call the Babylonian captivity, okay? This started the Babylonian captivity of God's chosen people. They were just, in an apt way to say is that they were suffering, okay? They probably weren't having any fun. They're forced to learn a new language. They actually get renamed. Everything kind of gets taken away from them. This isn't paradise by any means. But at the same time, Life for them didn't change all too much. They sought to obey the king as much as they could. Okay, so they're not moping around, sour, uh, just feeling bad for themselves. No, by the hand and the grace of God, they were actually found to be the best servants in the land. So there was kind of this thing going on, and they were actually found to be, it says, ten times better than the other magicians, helpers, uh, just it was this weird competition, whatever. They are the best ones, okay? So they're giving it their all, found 10 times better. They're rolling with the punches, trusting in God. But all of a sudden, tonight in chapter 3, they're confronted with the dilemma of their lives. It's a simple question. What do they fear? What are they afraid of? We are going to find out for ourselves. Daniel chapter 3, starting in verse 1. It's already up on the screen. King Nebuchadnezzar made a gold statue 90 feet high and 9 feet wide. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. King Nebuchadnezzar sent word to assemble the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the rulers of the provinces basically anybody who's anybody, to attend the dedication of the statue King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the rulers of the provinces assembled for the dedication of the statue the king had set up. They stood before the statue Nebuchadnezzar had set up. It's kind of repetitive, okay? I want you to know the author, he's doing this on purpose. He wants you to see, this is kind of silly. It's obvious Nebuchadnezzar set this up because he says it like 10 times. He set it up, okay? Then a herald loudly proclaimed, people of every nation and language, underline this, you are commanded when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, drum, and every kind of music, you are to fall face down and worship the gold statue that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. But whoever does not fall down in worship will be immediately thrown into a furnace of blazing fire. Therefore, when all the people heard the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, and every kind of music, people of every nation and language fell down and worshiped the gold statue that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. 
Some Chaldeans took this occasion to come forward and maliciously accuse the Jews, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, May the king live forever. You as king have issued a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, drum, and every kind of music must fall down and worship the gold statue. But whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into a furnace of blazing fire. There are some Jews you've appointed to manage the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men have ignored you, the king. They do not serve your gods or worship the gold statue you've set up. Then in a furious rage, Nebuchadnezzar gave orders to bring in Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king. Nebuchadnezzar asked them, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, is it true that you don't serve my gods or worship the gold statue I've set up? Now, if you're ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, drum, and every kind of music, fall down and worship the statue that I made. But if you don't worship it, you will immediately be thrown into a furnace of blazing fire. And who is the God who can rescue you from my power? Okay? What to expect as an exile? The first thing we can expect is pressure. Pressure. As seen in these guys' lives who, by the way, were your age. They were college age males. So don't imagine them as some far off, unrealistic expectation of what life would have been like. They're your age. They're you guys. They're pressured to break the first commandment. God says in the Ten Commandments, the first one, the most important one, he starts it off with, you're to have no other gods before me. I come first. In order for this story to make sense, we need to have a very good understanding that the first commandment matters. It's first for a reason. God is not concerned with half devotion to them. He's concerned with getting their whole heart, their whole life, dedication, obedience, everything. He's not interested in their appreciation. He's interested in nothing less than everything. And that's not selfish. He's right in asking that. But the problem is obviously that we're always pressured to worship other things. Now the statue seems stupid and the writer he kind of makes it obvious, like he even says the statue that I made or the statue that was set up. It's like as divine as like this music stand, right? It's clearly something created. It seems so silly. Why would anyone bow down to a gold statue? But actually, it might not be so different today than the way that we act. Because what does it mean to worship something? I think, simply put, if we could boil it down, it means whatever you give the most amount of your time, energy, thoughts, your body, and your praise to, that is what you worship. Simply put, what's the highest priority in your life? What is like the final, uh, if you're making a decision, What's the final, like, what has the final say in that? Whatever it is, that's probably what you worship. So, 
How are we pressured today? If we can expect this, what's it look like? What should we be on the lookout for? Four things. The first, we're going to see pressure from authority. It's very clear in this. Authority. He says, you're commanded. Commanded what? To disobey the first commandment. That's a problem for these guys. There's a conflict of interest here. It's interesting because they've been a blessing for like three years. Uh, they're, they're found to be the best servants in the kingdom. And now all of a sudden, they're in a little bit of a pickle because Nebuchadnezzar, who's like blessed them and let them be people of influence, has now made himself a direct competitor with God. He said, me or him. There's a clear command to disobey. That's pressure. What are they going to do? Second thing, we see pressure from conformity. Everyone is bowing down. All of the most important people in all of the surrounding nations, they come and bow down. And I think often when we think of this story or stories like this, we think, Man, that must have been a really hard decision for all of them to bow down. It was probably actually a pretty harmless and easy thing for them to do. So everyone has been a part of a euphoric musical experience before. Okay, Whether it's at a concert, whether it's here. When there's a group of people, we all know this to be true. When there's a group of people all facing one way, listening to the same thing, focused on words and the sounds, that is a unifying force. It's like this, it's a spiritual experience. The same thing's happening here. Notice how he didn't just say like, when you hear the horn, okay? It's not just like one horn and then everyone bows down just really cold. No, it's like this exciting, euphoric, lighthearted, joyful concert that everyone's taking a part of. It's unifying the entire nation. And to disrupt this could easily be seen as disrespectful. Beyond the fact that everyone's doing it, and it was actually not like a super hard thing to do. It was actually probably just pretty easy, just jumping into the concert. Besides that fact, I can think of four really good excuses that these three men could have easily employed, and I would have said, yeah, that's legit. First thing, Nebuchadnezzar is not requiring them to deny their God. He's just saying, I want you to also bow down to me. He's not saying there's only one God and I'm it. He's just saying, I also want your praise and adoration. Okay, so they could have kept practicing following God. Second thing, they could have easily said, well, when we bow down, we're just going to worship God in our hearts. And we'll truly be worshiping our God, even though it'll look like we're bowing down to the statue. If the Bible would have said that, I kind of would have been like, all right, yeah. doesn't say that. Next, they probably had friends in the crowd who were doing it and were like frustrated by them and didn't see the things they saw. They would have easily been like, dude, just, what's the big deal? Just bow down. Everyone's doing it. Their friends were pressuring them. And lastly, they could have easily justified themselves by saying, well, you know, if we bow down to Nebuchadnezzar, then we get to keep our royal positions of authority and then we'll influence Nebuchadnezzar that way. That's how we'll do it. We don't want to get fired. We don't want to die. Then we lose our influence. Then what good are we, right? But to them, the ends of 
influencing people for God do not justify the means of getting there if the means involve sinning. It's no question for them. It's not happening. So they face pressure from authority, from conformity, which is a big one. Third, they face pressure from hatred or malice. That's what it says in there. Uh, The Chaldeans were kind of enemies of God. They were magicians. And actually, if you read the book of Daniel, they kind of beat these guys out for uh, just a role of influence. And so they're very jealous. They hate these guys. And so God's enemies are throwing them under the bus. They're turning them in. They face pressure from evil hatred. And lastly, they face pressure from intimidation. The king, the king himself, brings them before him. It's the three of them. And he gives them one shot. And he threatens them with three big words. He says, furnace of blazing fire. Kind of repetitive, honestly. Like the the way the story is written is really interesting. They're trying to say something here. Furnace of of blazing fire. They could have just said, I'll throw you in the fire. I'll throw you in the furnace. Why do they say it? basically the same thing three times? He says, if you don't bat on me right now, I'm going to kill you. I'm going to kill you. So what do you want? Do you want to live or do you want to die? That's the question facing them. Before we move on, just a little psychology lesson here. People in general will follow whatever makes the most amount of sense. Okay, what's the logical thing to do? That's what most people are going to do. So, for the nation there, if there's a concert and joy in front of them and a furnace of blazing fire behind them, most people are going to do the logical thing and live. Okay? But these guys, they see the facade and the fake, the fake power behind this unholy pressure. And so it's easy for them to reject this intimidation. Let's move on. Starting in verse 16, chapter 3. So he says, Who's the God who can rescue you from my power? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, Nebuchadnezzar, we don't need to give you an answer to this question. (laughs) If the God we serve exists... Then he can rescue us from the furnace of blazing fire, and he can rescue us from the power of you, the king. But even if he does not rescue us, we want you as king to know we will not serve your gods or worship the gold statue you set up. Not the answer he wanted to hear. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with rage, and the expression on his face changed toward Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He gave orders to heat the furnace seven times more than what was customary. And he commanded some of his best soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to throw them into the furnace of blazing fire. Which, by the way, this furnace was probably like this big cylinder that they walked up and threw them in from the top. Okay? Uh, Throw them into the furnace of blazing fire. So these men, in their trousers, robes, head coverings, and other clothes, were tied up and thrown into the furnace of blazing fire. Since the king's command was so urgent and the furnace extremely hot, the raging flames killed those men who carried Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego up. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the furnace of blazing fire. Okay? Second thing we can expect if we're going to live lives as exiles 
is persecution. Jesus promised us. He says, if they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. Not necessarily a good or bad thing. It's just the way things are. He's like, they're going to persecute you. Okay? And you would think that in a matter of life and death, they would take some time to think about the way they want to react, to think about their response. Because I don't actually think it's as obvious as maybe we jump to the conclusion. Of course, they did the right thing. Maybe it wasn't so obvious. They respond immediately like Jesus did. Okay, I don't know if you remember this, but Jesus, when he's standing before the chief priests, they say, are you the son of God? Are you the king of the Jews? He just doesn't say anything. I don't know why. He doesn't say anything. And these guys too, for whatever reason, who's this God who can save you? It would make sense for them to be like, well, the God of Israel, the God who created, like, to, def- I don't know, defend him or even leverage that to witness for him. They don't. They just say nothing. They're like, we're not answering you. Don't know why. There's no defense from them. But they actually respond immediately without hesitation. And why? Why didn't they take time to think about it? I think it's because there was nothing for them to decide on. The decision was made years ago. When they were young men, they said, no other gods. First commandment. Years ago. They refused in the past to worship other gods. So why would they change their minds now? The decision was already made. It's easy for us to imagine ourselves in Kinnick Stadium. It's filled, you know, and uh, we're one of the few. It's like just, just salt companies not bowing down. Everybody's bowing down to some stupid thing on the field. We're not. That's cool. That's a good thing to have in your head. I hope that happens to us for some reason one day. But if that happens to us, I promise you this. The pathway that we got to get there was paved with thousands of refusals to serve other gods first. Anything the world could throw at us. Greed, approval, whatever they want us to worship. We said, no. Of course not. And the world is throwing something new at us. Like every 20 minutes, something you need to be worshiping or getting behind. Right now it's Dr. Seuss. I don't understand. It's crazy. In 20 more minutes, there's going to be something else. But a refusal from us to bow down to anything else is what's going to eventually get us to that Kinnick Stadium moment if God would have us be in that situation. Okay, these guys stood up to strangers before, they stood up to their friends, they stood up to their family. So now before the king, what's the difference? There's no difference. Don't think that they just stumbled upon this position and they got lucky and mustered up a bunch of courage and they'd never done this before. They were well trained for it. They expected it. They knew persecution's part of life. They're exiles. That's what happens. Which makes me think the little things in life really matter. The insignificant things in life, the insignificant victories, if you will, that you think don't matter, they do matter. They, they matter way more than you could ever imagine. If you walk through a forest 
or in a grass field or whatever that's never been walked on before, and you, you go on this path to wherever you're going, and you look back, there's really no evidence that you walked on it. The grass just pops right back up, right? Doesn't matter. If you walk on that path a hundred times, the brush starts to get kicked out of the way, and maybe the grass is kind of matted down, and you kind of see a path now. If you walk on that path a hundred thousand times, now there's nothing there except for dirt that is as hard as a rock because you've walked on the path so many times. For any deer hunters out there, deer, they follow one path. Why? Because if they step in a hole and break their leg, they're dead. So they keep walking on paths that they know are safe. There's no holes that they're going to twist their ankle, which would lead to their death. And if you're following Jesus on a clear path, a very clear path, marked by one com- the first commandment, no other gods, then you know the shiny objects outside of the path actually have a snare and a trap like right next to them. You know what I mean? You know that the shiny objects outside of the path are persecution. They're coming. You got to deal with them. They're at every turn. So back to our friends. They are aware in this moment, they're standing before the king, they're aware of God's ability to save them, but they are not, don't think that they have any idea of his purpose behind this suffering and this trial. They have no idea what God's going to do. They're, they're aware and they believe in his ability as evidenced by their response, but they do not know what he's going to do. Their faith was a friend to uncertainty in the details. Okay, if your faith seems to be allergic to uncertainty, you have kind of a weird, something weird's going on there. There's some sort of disconnect. Faith is a friend to uncertainty. These guys cared a lot more about obedience than they they did about deliverance. Nebuchadnezzar, standing before him, he says, furnace of blazing fire. And they say, even if he doesn't save us, they knew life as an exile came with pressure, came with persecution, the last thing they knew. It also comes with provision. Okay, point number three. If you're in exile, you can count on life that comes with provision from God. We're going to finish out this story. So they fall from the top of this furnace, bound into the fire. And then King Nebuchadnezzar jumped up in alarm. He said to his advisors, didn't we throw three men bound into the fire? Yes, of course, your majesty, they replied to the king. He exclaimed, look, I see four men not tied, walking around in the fire, unharmed. And the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the door of the furnace of the blazing fire and called, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you servants of the Most High God, come out. He invites them out. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire. And when the satraps, prefects, governors, and the king's advisors gathered around, they saw that the fire had no effect on the bodies of these men. Not a hair of their heads was singed, their robes were unaffected, and there was no smell of fire on them. Also notice, remember they were tied up, 
they fell in bound, but then they're walking around. So the things that bound them, that tied them together, that snapped off with the fire, but their clothes, it said they had their turbans, their outer clothing, whatever. None of that stuff even smelled of fire. Nebuchadnezzar exclaimed, Praise to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He sent his angel and rescued his servants who trusted in him. They violated the king's command and risked their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I issue a decree that anyone of any people, nation, or language who says anything offensive against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego will be torn limb from limb and his house made a garbage dump. That's crazy. For there is no other God who's able to deliver like this. And then the king rewarded Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. So what can we expect as a citizen of heaven living in a country of death? We can expect for God to provide for his children. And it's going to look different for everybody. Every situation is unique. There are no rules or guarantees with God's provision, okay? I want to make a disclaimer with that. Right here we have a token, a very cool illustration and real story of God's miraculous provision that he can do and that he obviously did. It's not a blueprint, though, to how he's going to provide for us in the future. But the foundation, the truth of it remains the same. God is going to care for us in the big and the small. He's going to provide. He's going to deliver And one of the greatest ways that God has provided for his children is actually by giving us the commandment that got these guys thrown into the fire. Okay, the first commandment. Here's our big idea for the night. The first commandment is not a burden, but more than anything, it is an invitation into a life of freedom. The first commandment is freedom. No other gods. If you live your life without direction and you are looking for people, ideas, things to give you satisfaction and meaning in life, I'm going to be honest. Your life is going to be miserable. I I say that because I deeply care for you and I deeply believe those things are going to let you down. There are an unlimited number of things you could be worshiping in your life that could be an idol in your life. I'm actually not going to take the time to say any of them. I'm not going to suggest what you could be worshiping. That is for you and God to decide. I've prayed, we've prayed that you would feel convicted and something would come to mind on what it is you're worshiping. If you're thinking about this and the shoe fits for something, deal with it. Go there with God. Let him convict you and teach you. If you serve anything else besides God, you are, you are willingly entering into a life of slavery. These things do not want to help you. Anything else you're serving besides Jesus Christ is not going to give you a better life, a longer life, more happy, nothing. It's going to be worse. Every idol 
wants to take your life and take you away from the life giver. And it will hurt you and disappoint you. And the moral of the story is not to live life without fear and just obey because it's cool. Not at all. Actually, living a life without fear, with devotion to God, might get you thrown into fire like these guys did. They actually got thrown into fire. They thought they were dead men, as they should have been. They should have died. Because they obeyed, they should have died. And many people have died in the past because they obeyed. Some of you in the room actually might die because you obey Jesus Christ. That's a reality. But it's better to die in obedience than it is to live in sin and comfort. Amen? So I ask you, what these guys had to ask themselves, what are you afraid of? What do you fear? For these three men, it's very clear. The only thing they feared was God. They were more fearful of God than they were of anything else, even a furnace of blazing fire. And that's good because God said, fear me and don't be afraid. He actually has asked that of you. He has told you, I don't want you to be afraid. So in the face of persecution, we will either be delivered from death or we will be delivered in death. Okay? And the reason we can be provided for in death is because Jesus Christ took the sting of death away as he died on the cross for our sins, not for his. And now, because of his sacrifice, when we close our eyes in death, which, by the way, we all will die one day. It's a reality. We get to enjoy the provision of God in the highest degree for the highest amount of time you, could, you, you can't even imagine. And here's what you need to know. The best possible provision that you could ever experience is not something like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. It's not getting thrown into fire and living. That's cool provision. The best provision you could ever experience is dying and then living again forever. It's crazy. The best possible provision is not being, is not dying, but living. The fourth man who ends up showing up in the fire always somehow finds his people. Okay, that's not cheesy to say. That's just true. In the big and the small, the fourth man in the fire, he will be with you. That just needs to be said. So, what are we supposed to do? Great story. Now what? You're going to leave here. What do we do? I think we try to do with the help and the grace of God, we try to do the same thing that God did in them. Okay? They lived according to what God asked of them for years before any big test ever came in their life. They faithfully followed and obeyed God. Notice, this is a big one, they didn't burst out in anger against anybody who did bow down. The whole nation's bowing down. And these guys, you don't see them out there pointing fingers and yelling and being angry at those who did bow down. They didn't insult them. 
They didn't confront them. They just lived quiet lives of obedience. They weren't trying to get thrown into the fire by any means. This was not their goal, okay? They weren't rushing into martyrdom. They weren't trying to get, get this story written about them in the Bible. They were just trying to obey God. But then when they were rightly called into account and confronted, they acquitted themselves by God's grace with courage and faithfulness to him. So like them, we can say to those who can kill the body and do nothing else, do your worst, please. To those who we stand before and they say, furnace of blazing fire, we can confidently say, old, rugged cross. Amen? I want to go back to that first Peter passage that we started with and end with that. He says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the chosen, that's us, living as exiles, dispersed abroad in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, and we might as well say Iowa City. Chosen, not because of anything you did, but according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient and to be sprinkled with the blood of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the great provision, protection that you show us in this story. For what you did in this story, but Lord, thank you more than anything for what you've done in our lives. Lord, you've commanded us, be strong and courageous. Do not fear. No other gods. So, Lord, if you commanded it, please help us to do what it is you want us to do. And for those who don't have faith, who could never even imagine themselves with the confrontation and the, the hardship of standing up for you when everyone else is bowing down, Lord, I pray that you gift them faith. It's not going to come by anything they did themselves. It's going to come by a gift from you. So, Lord, open their eyes to the reality of who you are because you're more real than we are and give them great courage to live lives of obedience and love for you. Lord, may we be a blessing to the city, to those around us, to our family, friends, and those we've never met yet. Lord, may the fourth man find us Wherever we're at, for some of us, it feels like we just got thrown in the fire. And I pray that they, they would feel the presence of the fourth man who is real and wants to be with them. And Lord, may we hold you up as first and most important, no other gods. We believe you can do this. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.